And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. Apologetics, you have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today, rocking and rolling, starting off a brand new week in apologetics, learning how to explain, defend the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence. And today, it's going to be a sensei day, you know, my own personal training with you. And we're going to look at a verse, you know, (laughs) Just the season two rundown, this particular verse, you know, you find it all over the internet, and that is Isaiah seven fourteen. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall name him Emmanuel. Um <clears throat> you know, this is it's the Christmas season, and this is usually when this particular verse ends up being like a lightning rod that gets struck from all different directions. You have uh Jewish anti missionaries claiming that uh, Matthew's application of that verse is uh, that he was ignorant of Hebrew. Uh, you have liberal Protestants who deny the virgin birth, and they also go after this verse and the meaning of this verse. And then you have um, pretty much everybody else, including atheists. I mean, it's one of the few times atheists will go after things in Scripture, specifically in Scripture. And you'll get people like Sam Harris who uh, will say Matthew didn't know Hebrew and this is all a misunderstanding. And boy, if the Christians just knew Hebrew from the beginning, they'd know this wasn't a virgin birth and you wouldn't have the embarrassment of it. Well, what exactly is Isaiah 7.14? What are the arguments against it? I'm going to propose my own argument, too. I, I actually have a special take on this. And the reason I'm bringing this up not only is because this is, like I said, a lightning rod during this particular time of year for a lot of anti-Catholic, anti-Christian sentiments. But uh, we've already done a lot of legwork in my book, Making Sense of Mary. And there's this whole thing about the Queen Mother that I think factors into the reason why early Jews before the time of Christ understood Isaiah 7.14 as referring specifically to a virgin and we'll, so we'll talk about the Hebrew, we'll talk about the Greek, uh, we'll talk about the major objections. I'll throw out some possibilities, some answers, and, uh, and of course, my own take that you can use uh, from some of the groundwork we laid in our previous sessions together. So that's all coming up on the other side of the break. That should be a lot of fun. I don't know if I actually have done this before. I think I have on this show uh, probably last Christmas, <laughs> but uh, anyway, it's good to review and to get ready for this because you will run across, uh, you know, these type of ads or uh, videos on YouTube and other social media things about uh, Isaiah seven fourteen. So, uh, us Catholics, we ought to know our scripture very well and be able to give an answer for the hope that's in us. That's what we're commanded to do. And speaking of giving an answer for the hope that's in us. Uh, here's a nice segue. I want to thank all of you for checking out the Apocrypha Apocalypse channel on YouTube. By the way, our current subscribers 
are currently at 3,780 subscribers, which cracks me up that uh, so many people are interested. But then again, it, it doesn't shouldn't surprise me because it really is the ultimate question. My whole YouTube channel is, is aimed at answering the question, why are there seven Old Testament books that are found in Catholic and Orthodox Bibles that have been rejected by Protestants and Jews? And so this channel is like nothing but um, wall-to-wall apologetics on the Old Testament canon, which I believe is really the Achilles heel of Protestantism. I really don't think there is a uh, a a response that could hold water in regards to rejection of these books. So for, I want to thank you guys. I, I always make an appeal every Friday to uh, check it out. And if you like it, subscribe and stuff. And uh, I know that you have been doing it. So I just want to personally thank you for doing that. And if you haven't checked it out, please do. And if you like it, subscribe. And because uh, we are really close to hitting the 3.8 K mark, which would be super, super cool. Uh, we're nearing that, so we need a little bit of a push to get over that edge. Uh, who knows how the algorithms work on social media, but uh, you know any support you can give is highly appreciated. So just go on YouTube, type in Apocrypha Apocalypse or my name, and that should do the job. And you know, subscribe, like, leave something in the comment that you also helps the algorithms as well. Enough about me. Uh, let's uh, talk about today's Finding the Fallacy, which is the continual fallacy. And also, we're going to meet an early church father. Today's early church father is not so much an interview individual, but a document. It's a letter of Barnabas. Very early document, by the way. But before I do all that, I want to welcome all of you to the show, getting with our live stream audience, and also, of course, all of you listening on radio around the country, and also via podcast around the world. Welcome aboard, folks. It's great to have you with us. Also, uh, if you're maybe you're, you're interested in the, having this, or maybe somebody has challenged you on Isaiah seven fourteen, this might be a good program to share with them. And it's very easy to do. Virgin Most Powerful Radio has done the hard, the hard work of making this available with a click of a button. All you have to do is just either you could do it on your phone app, or you could go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org, scroll down to hands-on apologetics or any other programs on Virgin Most Powerful, and boom, you got the program right there. You could share it. You could download it. You could tell your friends. Use it for apologetics purposes. But I personally think, you know, learn the program, listen to it a few times so you got a lot of the details down, and then use it yourself. Uh, I think that's even more valuable, but nevertheless, you do need the resource. So go to virtualmostpowerfulradio.org, and that will help you a lot. Also, the official Dojo mailbox, if you'd like to contact me, is questions at handsonapologetics.com. It comes directly to me. And, yes, I know, it's taking a long time. Actually, I get hit by the stomach flu this weekend, so that's put me even further behind but I promise I'm going to try to make it up and get caught up on all the emails. But I truly appreciate you contacting me. Share your own experiences and stuff like that. All right. What about the finding of fallacy? The continual fallacy. It's an argument that two states or conditions cannot be considered distinct or do not exist at all because between them there exists a a continuum of states. This, by the way, is sometimes called the argument from the beard. And in fact, one of the stock examples is that uh, 
Someone may say there there is no difference between a bearded person and a clean-shaven person or a bald person and a person with a head of hair. Why? Because, well, if you remove a hair from someone who is fully bearded, uh, do they still have a beard? Yeah. Well, you remove two. Are they still bearded? Yes. And you can just keep going, going, going. And there doesn't seem to be an exact point where if you remove one hair, suddenly the bearded person becomes clean-shaven or the full-headed hair person uh, becomes bald, right? And the, the fallacy believes that since you can't make a distinct line of demarcation between the two, either it denies that there really isn't a distinction or that the extremes don't exist at all. Uh, stock example, I think, does enough to kind of refute the whole argument because uh, obviously there is a big difference between the two. But nevertheless, uh, they can be used in other contexts where it it be a little bit more difficult to to argue. So it's important to realize that there is this fallacy known as the continuum fallacy. Okay, let's meet our early church father for today. And like I said, it's not a person. It's actually a document, a very early document, letter of Barnabas. And as usual, you know, it's funny how these things are misnamed. Uh, Jurgen's Faith Early Fathers notes that it's not a letter at all, but the so-called letter of Barnabas is actually a theological tract. It nowhere asserts that Barnabas is its author and lays no claim to apostolic origin. From the earliest times, the work was attributed to the apostle Barnabas, companion of Paul. However, it's decided antipathy to everything Jewish together with a markedly unpauline character of its teachings, makes it such authorship uh, utterly untenable, says Jurgens. The work is probably of Alexandrian origin and is extant in its original Greek in uh, the biblical Codex Synacticus of the 4th century. It uh, was placed after the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, and... Uh, also, the same codex, uh, Jerusalem codex, uh, which also houses the uh, Didache as well. There are other Greek manuscripts of Barnabas' letter, and uh, it is uh, extant also in the 3rd century Latin translation. Uh, the date of Barnabas has been hotly contested over the years. Uh, in regards to the date, modern authors tend to more and more to favor the period of 117 A.D., or 132 A.D., the latter rather than the earlier date within that period, earlier date of 70 or 79 presents its own particular difficulties. But on the other hand, if one attempts to date it during the period of 117 or 132, uh, that also brings up its own set of difficulties as well. In fact, Jurgens notes that if it's really of that late of a date, it, the Epistle of Barnabas it offers something kind of embarrassing because it almost totally lacks any kind of New Testament quotation or citation within it. So what is the date of the Epistle of Barnabas? Well, it's sometime very, very early on. Certainly, it's probably sub-apostolic, uh, and hence it is part of the collection we call the Apostolic Fathers. And that's our Meet the Early Church Father for today, the letter of Barnabas. Coming up next, we're going to talk about Isaiah 714 and answering objections. Stay tuned.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. And we're going to talk about this one Old Testament verse that has caused a lot of people problems, especially during Christmas. It's funny. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, different seasons, certain anti-Catholics will come out in a certain way. You know, it seems like every Easter Time magazine will have some sort of article about whether Jesus existed or some other nonsense. Well, you know, Christmas has its own set of detractors. And when it's the Christmas season, usually the target is Isaiah 714 and the virgin birth. And uh, this verse is attacked in many different areas. I mean, it's it's amazing how many different ways it's attacked. Like I mentioned in the intro at this show, uh, Jewish anti-missionaries will put out videos where they will go through 714 and say, Christians completely misunderstand this verse. It has nothing to do with a virgin giving birth and uh, that this was fulfilled in Isaiah's day, yada, yada, yada. And uh, Christians don't know their Hebrew because the the Hebrew actually says that it's it's a maiden, it's not a virgin. And then uh, on the other hand, you have liberal Protestants, and maybe even I'm sure there's probably some uh, liberal theologian Catholics out there that would deny the virgin birth because they're anti-miraculous bent, and uh, they'll go after this verse pretty much along the same grounds as Jewish anti-mission missionaries. Um, and then you have the atheist who, on top of that, <laughs> will also pile on, usually quoting uh, liberal Protestants that, again, this verse doesn't say what it says in Hebrew and that Matthew was ignorant of Hebrew. And uh, therefore, this whole thing about the virgin birth uh, comes from ignorance. OK, so that's kind of the detractors out there. And uh, so it's important for us as Catholics, since we love the Virgin Mary and we, we certainly love and adore the incarnate wisdom, uh, Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, we ought to be able to give an answer for uh, Isaiah seven fourteen. And uh, a lot of us Catholics, we know the Bible, but we just don't know it as well as we should. So I want to take this program to update us on Isaiah seven fourteen. Go to talk a little bit about the context. We're going to address some of the stock objections. And I'm also, at the end, God willing, uh, I'm going to throw in my own spin on things. And I'm going to give my own explanation why the Septuagint, this Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's actually a Jewish translation that was written before the time of Christ, why the Jews back then translated the Hebrew as Parthenos, which is Greek word for virgin. So they understood it to be referring to a virgin. So we're going to talk a little bit about why they did that. So all of that's, you know, all the stuff we're going to tackle right now. So we got a lot ahead of us. So why don't we begin with uh, the, the verse in question. Isaiah seven fourteen reads, and I'm sure mo- most of you are already f- well familiar with it. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you the sign. The virgin shall be with a child and bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel. And, of course, Matthew quotes Isaiah 7.14, applies it to Jesus' birth from Mary, and, of course, he translates Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
By the way, this is also a really nice little apology for why do you believe Jesus is God? Well, that's exactly what the name Emmanuel means, God with us, right? So there's a little apologetic within this thing, but nevertheless. So what's the problem? Seems pretty straightforward. Well, the problem is has to do with the word virgin. We'll talk about that in a second. But before we do that, I want to talk about the context of Isaiah 714. Because remember, guys, a text without a context can become a pretext. And uh, you can take any verse out of the Bible, devoid of its context, make it say anything you want. So let's talk a little bit about the surrounding historic context and uh, Isaiah 7, the whole chapter. So what happens is this. You have a situation going on in the Holy Land surrounding areas where Assyria becomes the big bad boy on the block. And and Assyria is kind of like a first world power amongst third world powers. And it's flexing its military muscle. And by the way, the Assyrians were also very bloody and uh, uh, just pretty wicked when it came to warfare. Um, So they start pushing neighboring countries around. Now, if I want you to picture this in your mind, because this is radio. This is the layout of the land at that time. You have Assyria in the north, and then just south of Assyria, you have the kingdom of Israel, the split kingdom of the tw- the ten tribes that split off with uh, Rehoboam. And then further south, you have Judah. Okay, so think of a sandwich. The top piece of bread is Assyria, the, the middle part, the peanut butter and jelly, if you will, <laughs> the kingdom of Israel. And then at the bottom half is Judah. Okay, just so you get the point. Now, since Assyria is flexing its muscle and kind of pushing around its neighbors, it's pushing around the kingdom of Israel, the 10 northern tribes. Now, the kingdom of Israel is kind of helpless because even on its best day, it could, there's no way it could defeat the, the Assyrians. The Assyrians are, like I said, way, way above them in terms of military might. So the kingdom of Israel gets tired of being pushed around. They, they figure, well, we can't take Assyria, but maybe we can get a coalition of other countries, other in kind of as a, a, a accumulation of military might. Maybe we won't be able to defeat Assyria or anything like that, but we might just get strong enough where Assyria will stop pushing us around. So that's what it does. The kingdom of Israel begins to make some alliances, and it makes alliance with Damascus and Syria. And it also (coughs) plans maybe even getting the Egyptians together with them. And, of course, Judah to the south. So that's the plan. Get this coalition together, stop the Assyrians, or at least uh, make it uh, more difficult for them to be harassing them. And then everything will be good. Now, there is a a fly in the ointment, and that is Judah, the southern kingdom. Because the southern kingdom is the southern kingdom, and it's not really getting pushed around by Assyria. All the heat is on Israel to the north. So at that time, you have King Ahaz, who's a descendant of David on the throne in Judah. And Ahaz has no problems. He doesn't want to join this alliance, right? Um, so Isaiah seven comes into play. 
because now Israel figured, look, if you won't uncoerced, join our group, then we're just going to come down and we're going to conquer you, Judah. And then you could be part of the alliance, whether you like it or not. So that's the plot. And so they begin to march. So you have the northern 10 tribes begin to march against the two southern tribes in Judah. And God is uh, going to step in. Okay. Now, so he sends Isaiah to give a message to the king Ahaz. Now, Ahaz, in, in terms of worldly political sense, he's about to do something that makes a lot of sense. He wants to kind of join up with the Assyrians and be friendly with them. And that way, the Assyrians will have impetus to cause more trouble for Israel and this invasion will come to nothing because you can't win a two-front war, especially against the Assyrians. And God says, no, I don't want you to do that, Ahaz. Instead, what I want you to do is just wait. And that's what Isaiah's message is. He says, just wait, and I will deliver you from the uh, from Israel and Damascus. And Ahaz being very worldly, in fact, very sinful as far as the kings of Judah are concerned, basically doesn't really want to listen to Isaiah's message. So Isaiah through the Lord says this, and this is verse 11. So it's Isaiah seven eleven to be specific. Easy to remember if you're familiar with the convenience store. Ask for a sign from the Lord, your God. Let it be as deep as the netherworld, as high as the sky, Isaiah says to Ahaz. Ahaz, again, not really wanting to go along with the program, says, uh, he answers, I will not ask. I will not tempt the Lord. You know, uh, thanks, but no thanks, God. Then Isaiah says, or God says through Isaiah, Listen, O house of David, is it not enough for you to weary men? Must you also weary my God? Therefore, and at that therefore, we are now in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you the sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall name him Emmanuel. And that's the verse right there. And then he continues and he shall be living on curds and honey by the time he learns to reject the bad and choose the good. Before the child learns to reject the bad and choose the good, the, the land of those two kings whom you dread shall be deserted. And uh, then it continues onward. So this sign of the virgin conceiving and bearing the son is the point at stake. Now, I'm reading from the New American Bible. It's a Catholic translation. And that's how it renders it. But if you get a Jewish translation, um, in fact, here, let me, I'll try to bring it up really quick. Um, let's see how fast it can bring it up. You get Protestant, or excuse me, a Jewish translation, like, for example, the Tanakh, um, the Bible, you'll see it read something like, yeah, the Tanakh version. Therefore, the Lord will give him up and uh, will give you a sign. Behold, the young woman will conceive and bear a son. So the contention is, did Isaiah really mean virgin? Or did he mean the young maiden? And that's what we're going to talk about on the other side of the break. 
We're going to look at the objections from Hebrew and other objections as well. And then, like I said, hopefully at the end of the program, I'll give you my own personal take, kind of drawing together a lot of the groundwork that we laid in previous episodes. And actually, uh, Richard, the engineer, who's probably extremely busy right now, he's kind of the guy behind the curtain who pulls all the levers and knobs that you never see. Uh, Maybe he can send me the reference to the website where uh, that houses our series on Making Sense of Mary, and I'll let you know that. But anyway, this would be a great uh, lesson right after that series because I'm going to plug some of the things that we've learned about the Queen Mother, some of the things we learned about the Davidic dynasty and how it's passed on. And I think if you take into consideration the time in which the Septuagint was made, I think you have a really good answer as to why these pre-Christian Jews who made the Septuagint how they uh, decided that the word that's sometimes uh, rendered as young maiden actually means virgin. So that's all coming up right here on Hands on Apologetics. I'm Gary Machuda, and we'll be right back right after this. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody, Hands-On Apologetics. And we're talking about Isaiah 714, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And uh, the last segment, I kind of went over the, the context, the historical context in which this prophecy is given. And let's go to the objections. The objections almost all center on the Hebrew and uh which I think is a little myopic, personally. But nevertheless, uh, what you'll find on uh, social media uh, is uh, often from Jewish sources, but like I said, liberal Protestant and also even atheist sources, is that in Isaiah 714 that the Hebrew doesn't say a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, but it's argued that it should be a young maiden shall conceive and bear a son, or a young woman, as the Tanakh version gives, uh, shall conceive and bear a son. Um, And the reason for that is because the Hebrew word used there, and this is what they argue, and it is true, is the word Alma, uh, A-L-M-A-H, Alma. And Alma, they'll say, simply means young maiden. It doesn't specifically mean virgin. And so uh, that's one line of argument. So the the Hebrew word there is young woman, and therefore it should be translated young woman shall conceive and bear a son. Okay, well, if you do a word study on the Hebrew word alma, you'll find out it's not a very common word in the Old Testament. It's used six times in the entire Bible, Old Testament Bible in Hebrew. And you'll also notice that four of those cases of Elma, it's true, is does not necessarily speak to a virgin. Okay, so it does speak about a young maiden. However, that being said, that's four of six instances. What about the other couple of instances of Elma? Well, it does refer to somebody who is a virgin. So what do we end up here? Well, Elma can mean virgin, 
but it can also mean young maiden. And if you think about it, the distinction between the two, especially in the context, not today's context, but generally in the Old Testament con- uh, uh, economy, a young maiden generally would be a virgin. Okay, so it's not surprising that Elma would also include references to a virgin, but it doesn't specifically mean virgin. And that's something that I think a lot of Christian apologetics uh, apologists sometimes overstep because it doesn't specifically mean that, but it does include it, and there are instances of Elma referring to virgins. Now, usually a follow-up objection is this. That if Isaiah really wanted to distinguish this woman as a virgin, there was a Hebrew word that it should have been used because this Hebrew word does mean virgin, and that is betula, B-E-T-U-L-A-H, betula. And this is a word that's actually used quite frequently in the Old Testament roughly about 50 times in the Tanakh, the whole Bible. And interesting enough, uh, about 31 out of the 50 times it's used, Betula refers to a virgin. Now, notice it's only 31 out of 50. What about the other times? Well, Betula is used for someone who is not a virgin. Okay. So, um... (laughs) That's interesting. So even the word that often the objectors will say ought to have been used in Isaiah 7.14, it still wouldn't clinch the case because both Elma and Betula uh, can refer to a virgin or it doesn't necessarily have to. Um, let's see. In fact, um, in fact, in one of my favorites, if, if you want a uh, defeating verse to show that Betula doesn't necessarily refer to a virgin. Go to Joel one eight. That's the one I usually go to. It says, "Lament like a maiden girl with sackcloth for her husband of her youth." So the maiden girl is Betula, and yet we find out that she's someone who had been married for a long time since her youth, and obviously that would not be a virgin, right? So. Uh, there yet proof Betula doesn't necessarily mean virgin, nor does Alma. In fact, in Hebrew, there isn't a specific word that is designates only virginity. Let me say that again. There is no Hebrew word that designates specifically and exclusively someone who is a virgin. Rather, you use words like this, and either it's in the context you learn whether or not they're a virgin, or it will say they don't know man or something like that. There would be some sort of specifier that this particular doesn't person doesn't. But that's all you got. So given the language of Hebrew, um, when Isaiah 7.14, when it says that a, a, an Alma will uh, conceive and, and bear a son and he'll be named Emmanuel, that still opens the possibility it's a virgin or it could be a young maiden or it could be both, right? <laughs> Words just aren't that narrow, that exclusive, that uh, uh, specific, right? So that takes, I think, a lot of the wind out of the objector's sails because 
if that's true, even with the own word that they say means specifically virgin, uh, someone who is a virgin, then obviously uh, the objection fails, right? It doesn't fly. And there's a couple of reasons to suppose that, indeed, this is a virgin. And without even getting into uh, looking at Hebrew and stuff. For example, well, we have the Septuagint, that Greek translation. It's a Jewish translation, pre-Christian, of the Old Testament scriptures. And in this pre-Christian translation, the Jews of that day, when they looked at Elma in Hebrew, translated it Parthenos. Parthenos. Now, many of you may be familiar with the um, the Greek temple Parthenon. Well, the Parthenon is named after the virgin goddess. So, you know, if you forget what this word is, just think Parthenon and just put an os at the end. So Parthenos. And Parthenos, even Parthenos has a bit of a semantic range. Most generally refers to a virgin. So, uh, so it's not a Christian bias. It wasn't Matthew trying to read something into the Hebrew. This is something that the ancient Hebrews before the time of Christ understood that what's going on here in Isaiah seven fourteen is a reference to a Parthenos, a virgin. And that's why they translate it as such. And I think also the context bears this out. Why do I say that? Well, again, context, context, context. You have to interpret things within their proper context. Otherwise, you can wrench it out of context and make it say anything you want. <clears throat> What's the immediate context? Well, Isaiah's asking Ahaz, say, ask for a sign from the Lord in verse 11. Uh, may, let it be as deep as the netherworld or as high as heaven or the skies. Okay. And this is uh, this is a Semitism. This is an idiomatic way of referring to everything. Okay, uh, in English we have idioms like that. Uh, for example, you say everything from soup to nuts. That means everything, you know, all inclusive, right? Or from A to Z, or A to Z, if you're English. That means. It includes A, B, C, and all the other letters all the way up to the last letter. In other words, it's all inclusive. Well, the Hebrews do that too. They'll often take ex you know, to two extremes, and within those two extremes, they mean everything in between. So uh, you have the Alpha and Omega, right? Same idea going on there. It's a Semitic way of expressing the totality, Okay. So when Isaiah talks to Ahaz and he says, ask for a sign that is as deep as the deepest netherworld or as high as the highest heavens, he's basically saying to Ahaz, ask for anything, anything at all. And God will give you a sign that you'll know that you should not enter an alliance with Assyria. You should just sit back and let the Lord do what he's about to do. And of course, Ahaz kind of refuses. He says, I won't, I won't ask for a sign. I'm not going to tempt God. So God gives the sign. Now, given what is said in 711, that make it as deep as the netherworld, as high as the heavens or the sky, um, you would expect that this sign would be an astounding sign, right? 
But a young maiden giving birth to a child is not an astounding sign. In fact, young maidens are usually the ones who do give birth. The, the most astounding sign is someone like Elizabeth, who gives birth to John the Baptist in her old age, or Sarah giving birth to uh, uh, giving birth to, to Isaac, right? That's astounding because old age uh, simply aren't bearing years, but a young maiden definitely bears children. So that's not much of a sign unless the young maiden is really someone who has not known man, namely a virgin. So I think the context, especially verse 11, leads us to expect in verse 14 that the Alma shall bear a child as a sign would be something that would be very unusual. And like I said, between virgin and young maiden, virgin certainly would be unusual. In fact, it would be unprecedented as we read in Jeremiah 31. Uh, God is going to create a new thing on the earth. A woman will encompass a man. So uh, that's just one reason that uh, among uh, a couple of reasons, actually, of why we should suspect that um, it's referring to a virgin and that the uh, pre-Christian Jews who translate into Greek actually got it right. All right, so I hear the music coming up. This is a good place to hit pause. We're going to tackle one more objection from the context, and then I'm going to give you my own spin as to why the Septuagint renders it virgin right after this. Stay tuned, everybody. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888 888- Five two six two one five one. Here's Gary, and welcome back, everybody. Hands on apologetics, and we're talking about Isaiah seven fourteen about the virgin conceiving and bearing a son. And so far, we went over to the Hebrew and a little bit of Greek, and showed that it, it's a little ambiguous. It can mean virgin, it can mean young maiden. Uh, the context certainly, I think, points to a virgin being spoken of. And there's one more objection. I think this is probably the most substantial objection is the succeeding context, because after talking about Emmanuel, it says uh, he shall be living on curds and honey by the time he learns to reject the good and, uh, and choose the, excuse me, reject the bad and choose the good. But before the child learns to reject the bad and choose the good, the land of those two kings whom you dread shall be deserted. So the final phase is the two kings will be deserted. So this suggests that Emmanuel was a sign for Ahaz and it must have occurred because ultimately uh, uh, the two kings do desert their their positions and leave. So um, what do you do about that? Doesn't that mean that 714 has already been fulfilled? Well, there are several different approaches to that. I'm just going to give you one, which I find fascinating, because if you keep reading, and that's just it, you know, the objector stops there, but there's actually a lot more going on afterwards. What you find is there's another child that is born in chapter 8 of Isaiah, and it's Isaiah's own child. And Isaiah's child's name is Maharshala Hashbaz. 
Actually, one of the longest, if not the longest name in the Old Testament. And there's interesting parallel in the first few verses of Isaiah 8 that run parallel to Isaiah 7, 14 through 17. Okay. For example, uh, you have the name, uh, which is a symbolic name, kind of like Emmanuel. Uh, instead of the young maiden or the virgin, it talks about the prophetess as the mother of this child. And it says, and she became pregnant and bore a son, similar to uh, uh, the woman became pregnant. It was about to bear a son. Uh, you should call him Maharshala Hashbaz, kind of like you should call him Emmanuel. And also note that this other child has the exact same kind of, uh, or very, very similar kind of symbolic designation as Emmanuel. Before the child is able to say, my father or my mother, the king of Assyria will be gone. So you have another kind of time prophecy about a child who's born of a woman. Okay. So there are two figures here, Emmanuel and Maharshala Hashbaz. And uh, as uh, Dr. Brown notes, who focuses, uh, he's a Messianic Jew, notes that it seems as if God gives two signs to Ahaz. One is an earthly sign that was fulfilled in Isaiah's day with Maharshala Hashbaz. But what about this Emmanuel figure? You know, who is Emmanuel? Well, we know Emmanuel is not Maharshala Hashbaz because elsewhere in 8, it does talk a little bit about Emmanuel. And it's clear from the description that Emmanuel is a Davidic king. Okay. And Maharshal Hashbaz, or we'll just call him Mahar, um, he's not a Davidic king. He's the son of the prophet. So the, the two are distinct. There's also another uh, distinction as well. And that has to do again with the preceding context of Isaiah 7.14. Before it says, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel. God says, listen, O house of David. So he's not speaking directly to Ahaz, but rather he's talking to the dynasty of David. Okay, the whole house. Is it not enough for you to worry men, weary men, must you also weary my God? And the word you there is a plural. So he's not speaking specifically to Ahaz or this specific instance, but it's more of a general to the whole house. Okay, to the future of David's house, as well as uh, the current occupant. So this Emmanuel figure is mysterious, right? It, he has kind of a time prophecy, but, um, but, you know, this Emmanuel, who apparently is born of a virgin, is not something that takes place in Ahaz's time. This seems to be something that will take place later on. So, um, this brings us to the Septuagint. Okay. Now, let me give you my own personal take, and you can use this or not. I, I could be wrong. I've done some research. This seems to make sense to me. So, why did the pre-Christian Jews who translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, the Septuagint, why did they render Alma as virgin? I mean, besides the context and all that, was there any other 
reason they they came up with that must be a virgin. Well, if Isaiah's Isaiah was translated between 200 BC and 50 BC, that's when the Deuterocanon was written. So, uh, sometime around that period, as you know, that's the Maccabean period. It's also known as the Hasmonean period. This is when Judah, and remember, this is right before the time of Christ, a hundred or so years beforehand. Uh, Judah is being occupied by the Greeks, the Seleucids, and they're starting to reconquer the land, the, the Maccabees. And it's also right around this time that Daniel's timeline prophecy starts approaching. Remember the book of Daniel and uh, I think it's Daniel 7 and 9, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong on that. Uh, he prophesied that there would be this uh, the, uh, this kind of change in economy. The Messiah, the anointed, will, will occur. And so that's coming up. So the anointed's going to be coming, and this Maccabean revolt is happening. And what's going on? Some of the Hasmonean uh, leaders, the Maccabees, are starting to call themselves kings of Judah. Okay? Now, for the pious Jew, this is not kosher. Right? (laughs) Sorry for the pun. But it's not right, because God had promised that there would always be a son of David on the throne. So the Hasmoneans, they shouldn't be claiming to be the sons of Judah. There's something wrong here, something rotten in Denmark, why you're having non-Davidic people claiming the kingship right when you're on the doorstep of this fulfillment of the Messiah. And I think it was right within that context that the Jews were translating the book of Isaiah. And remember what we said in the the first segment when I was talking about Isaiah 7:14, the context. They go to Isaiah 7, and in this context, you have something very interesting. You have a similar problem. Because remember, Israel and Damascus, or Syria is invading Judah, and their goal, we learn, is what they want to do is they want to replace the Davidic king with a guy of their own kind, somebody that will go along with them. They want to install a puppet government, a person who's called the son of Tabeel. And so God says this will not happen because I promised there would always be a Davidic king on the throne. And that's where Isaiah 7.14 comes in. That's the sign And these translators, I think, as they're going through the text, they're recognizing something's wrong here. We have non-Davidic people claiming to be the king of Israel. Um, The the timeline for the Messiah is coming close. And we have something going on here like it was experienced in Isaiah 7, that there is a, a tension about the continuation of the house of David. And, of course, the prophecy about Manuel has to do with the house of David, the dynasty of David. Okay? So, when they come up to a young woman will conceive and bear a son, they have to ask themselves, how is God going to kickstart the Davidic monarchy when there is no king who will give a promise to one of the queens that her son will sit on the throne? Remember, That's what we laid down in the Making Sense of Mary series that, by the way, you can check it out. Just do a search for Making Sense of Mary at CatholicRC.org. And thank you, Richard, for running that down for me. Let's go to CatholicRC.org. You can listen to those programs and get all the background stuff. So is the Queen Mother's important? 
But at that time, there's no king and no legitimate king, no son of David, who would tell one of his queens that her son would sit on the throne. So I think with that problem, they they figured here's the solution, something we never really looked at closely before. This Alma must be a virgin. Okay. It must be a virgin because it, there's no son of David to give this uh, promise to one of his queens. So God is going to kind of jumpstart the Davidic monarchy and the Davidic dynasty through a virgin birth. So a woman will conceive and bear a son. She will receive a promise, but not from an earthly king, but through the action of God. See, that's how I read it. So when they translate into Greek, they didn't just put down the Greek equivalent of a young woman. They used the more specific term, a parthenos, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So, um, <laughs> and indeed, that's exactly what happens not long after that translation. The Hasmoneans kind of fall off the, the face of the earth and they're replaced by Herod, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was not Davidic, folks. King Herod, wicked King Herod, was an Edomite. Okay, he was not Davidic. In fact, he's, the Edomites were never really on friendly terms with the Jews. So it's with the advent of Herod, who's kind of like the equivalent of the son of, of Tabeel, in my humble opinion. You know, a foreign power establishes Herod as the king of Judah, that God kicks into action that prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. And that's when the angel Gabriel approaches Mary and says, actually, you can read this in Luke, where he says, uh, Behold, you conceive and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he'll be great and called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom. There will be no end exactly what God had promised David and exactly what had been prophesied by Isaiah 714. All of that is triggered with King Herod. So again, that's my own take on it. I, I think it makes sense, but uh, nevertheless, I'll throw it out there for your consideration. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Coming up next, the dynamic duo of Catholic Talk Radio, the Terry and Jesse show is coming up. Thank you so much for listening. And yes, it's time for me to turn off the lights in the dojo, shut down the Midwest Command Center. Talk to you tomorrow, God willing. Bye-bye, everyone.